Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. If you watched the news in the fall of 2014 at the height of the Ebola outbreak, his name is one you know. Dr. Rick Sacra, a family physician from Boston, is the third American aid worker to become sick with the virus. This isolation unit where Dr. Rick Sacra fights for his life tonight is so unique, it's never been fully activated until now. Dr. Sacra this morning is definitely in the fight for his life. It was early September 2014 that Massachusetts native and physician Dr. Richard Sacra, an assistant professor of family medicine and community health at UMass Medical School, who cared for patients at the Family Health Center of Worcester, contracted Ebola while spending time working in Liberia. He was rushed halfway around the globe to Omaha, Nebraska, spending three weeks in a special biocontainment unit, only released when the CDC confirmed there was no longer Ebola present in, in his body. Dr. Saker, it's nice to see you again. Welcome. Thank, thank you. Great to be back at UMass. So it's been nearly five years. How are you feeling? I'm doing well. I don't have any, uh, haven't had any complications for a while now, so very happy to have really fully recovered. And so there's no lingering impact from that whole episode. That's right. That's remarkable. So the 2014 outbreak, uh, for those who may not remember, is the worst on record. According to the CDC, 11,325 people died due to Ebola. The vast majority was in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Do you recall how you became infected? At that time, we were caring for uh, pregnant women, mainly at our hospital. Uh, many health facilities had closed down, and uh, SIM, the mission I work with, had decided that uh, obstetrics was the thing to focus on to, to uh, take care of women in labor who had literally nowhere to go to have a C-section. And so um, we had several patients <coughs> who uh, were very ill, and it was very difficult to figure out who had Ebola and who was just a sick, pregnant uh, mom. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, we didn't have easy access to testing. <coughs> uh, we had th several patients who uh, died in the hospital, again, people who came in very ill, with bleeding and in labor and so forth. But I, I do remember one of them, and, and uh, her HIV test was positive, and so we felt that her illness was due to HIV. Um, but in retrospect, probably she also had mm -hmm. Ebola. And, uh, but I don't remember specifically having a splash or a, an exposure. We, we always did our best to protect ourselves, but uh, Ebola is a disease where it, it, the amount required to be exposed is very, very tiny, so even a tiny little droplet. And at that time, uh, it, was, it was the height of the outbreak right. in, in West Africa. Yeah. And so, um, and then you, as we said, you came to the U.S. To, to receive treatment. And that experience of being in isolation, what stays with you from those three weeks? I have to say that the staff in, in uh, Nebraska really looked at their role in caring for me more than, more than just taking vital signs or giving IV fluids, they really, uh, it was a personal, um, you know, calling for them to, uh, to run this unit, and they really did a wonderful job, not just of caring for me medically, 
but of uh, caring for me personally. And so uh, it, was, it went by amazingly fast, and they did not leave me alone to uh, languish <laughs> in, the, uh, in the unit much. They brought, they brought games to play, believe it or not. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. The, one of them brought in a chess set. Anything that was brought in, of course, was kind of sacrificed because that was contaminated and could not be taken back out. But they brought me books to read. They brought me uh, a chess set to play, like I said. And, so forth, but really wonderful, hours of wonderful conversation too. So uh, they did a great job of, of uh, taking care of me in, in, all, in all ways. So there was still some meaningful human contact despite oh, yes. the layers of protection, right? Right. Because they were all suited up. Right. Were you a chess player before all this? No, no. <laughs> they, so I was easy to beat, so that was good. <laughs> that made it more uh, enjoyable for them. Well, I don't, I don't mean to make light of it, but because at that time, certainly here in the United States, and elsewhere, there was a lot of fear and there was a lot of misinformation about Ebola and, and at times it felt like it was bordering on panic. There was talk of closing borders. You know, even today there are smaller outbreaks um, at the moment in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, is one example. So I guess the question for you is, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about as a society, how fearful should we be when we hear the word Ebola? The new outbreak that's happening uh, right now and has been for uh, over six months in Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, the, the two differences between that outbreak and the one in West Africa are that the reason why it's been tough to control really has been that it's a politically unstable area. Uh, it's an area where there's an ongoing um, civil crisis, uh, different rebel groups and so forth, and so it's been very tough for people to get in there. Uh, groups like Samaritan's Purse, who partnered with us back in 2014 in Liberia, they are there, along with Doctors Without Borders, uh, doing great work um, in bringing things under control. The big advantage, actually, this time around, and I think what's, what's kept it from getting out of hand uh, in Eastern DRC, is that there is a vaccine now. Mm -hmm. And so all the healthcare workers who are going over to help, they all get vaccinated. Um, it's not a wonderful vaccine. I've, I hear from friends of mine who've taken it that it's very painful really? to receive it. Um, and it does, you know, it, it's a live virus vaccine, so it does have some side effects. But hey, protection from Ebola is a big deal. So that's making a huge difference. It, they've given over 60,000 doses to both healthcare workers and then also to I people who- I wasn't aware it was that widely available. Yeah. The vaccine, wow. Yeah. That's a game it's, changer. It's still, under a, it's still being given under what's called a research protocol. It's not an FDA-licensed vaccine, but it's being used on a mass level. Like I said, six, over 60,000 doses have been given. Um, so this is making a huge difference and really improving the ability to fight the, fight the, the epidemic more safely. And uh, so I think there's less risk of people like me getting infected and having to come home to the U.S. for treatment because of the vaccine. Of course, there's still issues about, you know, people travel. Um, yes. could, could somebody come here and uh, come down with the disease? Sure. So people have to be alert. People have to be ready. But this virus is not spread in the air. It's not spread in the water. It's not something that somebody who's not involved in healthcare is going to come in contact with just in a routine on a bus ride or in a taxi or something like that. It's, uh, it's really much more um, a concern of healthcare workers. And we do 
we do have to stay aware of what's happening, of course, in the healthcare system. I'm curious if you know about that vaccine. Is that being um, given to the population in the DRC, or is it primarily being given to health workers now who are going in? So whenever there's a case in a community or a cluster of cases, they go in and offer the vaccine to those close by. So they don't have enough to say they're going to vaccinate, you know, 20 million or 30 million people. They don't have enough supplies of it to do it that way. So they're using what's called a ring vaccine strategy where you identify who the contacts are of cases and you vaccinate, you know, people in close proximity, neighbors, classmates at school. To try to nip it in the bud so it doesn't spread further. Right. Exactly. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. All right, I have something to show you. We're gonna have a little this is your life moment. So you are a graduate of UMass Medical School. Do you care to share what year you graduated? Uh, I finished medical school in 1989 at so, UMass. So uh, what I just handed you was your page in the medical school's yearbook and uh, as you can see there's an adorable photo of you as a maybe two or three year old <laughs> kid, a picture of you and your wife, Debbie, a biblical quote, and, and what struck me is there's a hand-drawn map of Liberia. So Liberia has been a part of your life clearly for decades. I'm wondering when and why did you first travel? Well, um, when Deb and I uh, got married, which was uh, 1985, after my first year of med school, you can see that here on the diagram. I see. That first year, and then Debbie enters the cycle <laughs> at, at that point. Um, we decided we wanted to spend, we knew we wanted to spend uh, time overseas and, and really dedicate ourselves to cross-cultural uh, work, but we wanted to start that process without kids. And we knew that probably during residency, we would likely start a family. And so we thought, how can we get some significant time in, in a developing country setting, uh, you know, before we had kids? So we ended up taking a year off between third and fourth year of med school. And, the, and UMass was quite open to that, which was not all, not all medical schools were like that. But UMass was willing, as long as we were doing something relevant, something medically enriching. Sure. Uh, to do that. And uh, so we wrote to a bunch of different mission hospitals. Uh, and actually, Liberia was the one that would take us, and not because of, not because of me uh, and the medical school work, but actually they needed Debbie, who's a school teacher, uh -huh. they needed Debbie to teach junior high social studies at the school they ran for missionary children and you came at that along. compound. And they said, <laughs> we'll find something for this medical student to do to stay busy. So that's how we wound up I mean, we didn't, we didn't feel any sense of attraction to Liberia specifically at that time, mm -hmm. but we wound up going to Liberia, and then we just fell in love with all things Liberian uh, during that year that we spent there in 1987-88. Uh, so it's just how life played out. It was just right. happenstance. So what is it that drew you then and continues to draw you back to Liberia? Oh, well, the people are wonderful, if you know Liberians. They're very, um, they're friendly, they have a great sense of humor and joy in life. Uh, they're very hospitable. If you're, even if you're just walking through a neighborhood, if somebody's sitting out on the porch eating, they'll call you over 
my man, come, let's eat. Let's eat. Uh, and, liter and literally, even if, I mean, if you decide to go, that you've got a few minutes and you want to taste a bite of somebody's uh, potato greens, they will welcome you uh, to their table. So it's, they're, they're just wonderful, hospitable, friendly, uh, kind people. And they'll, they'll drop whatever they're doing uh, to come help a friend. So that's the kind of people they are. And we just really fell in love with that. So when, when you are living and working in Liberia, sh can you just walk us through what a typical day is like? The, the hospital uh, is quite busy. We have a 100-bed hospital. We live right on the compound with the hospital, so we have, a, we have a home. You know, I get up in the morning, we'll have breakfast together, head up to the hospital. Uh, 7.30, we have uh, chapel service for about a half an hour in which we both have some time just to sing and pray and settle our minds. And then usually at the end of that, there's a few announcements or um, information for the staff uh, that's needed to get the day going. And then we, uh, we start the day with uh, a doctor's meeting, morning report, as we call it, where we hear from the whoever interns or residents were on overnight. And they tell us about the admissions overnight. And uh, so we get an update. And right now, that's the whole medical staff meeting every day. I think eventually as we continue to grow, we'll probably start subdividing that. But um, so we have that meeting and then we, then we have rounds and then the day starts. And some days for me, I'm doing clinical work. I'm in the clinic or, or uh, doing ultrasounds, for instance. Uh, one day a week I, I do ultrasounds. Other days are more administrative and I'm, I'm more um, taking care of uh, grant reports or uh, doing some supervision, meeting with people uh, to evaluate their uh, experiences or their performance in a training setting. Uh, because I'm, our biggest, my biggest role there really is, is uh, running the family medicine residency program that we have. We have seven residents currently in training and we'll, we'll hopefully add four more uh, coming up in July. So we'll have, we'll, we'll end up uh, with a steady state, hopefully, of 12 residents in training at a time. Tell me about this residency program, and are you trying to fortify that pipeline for the future? Right. It's been, it's been our desire for quite a while, um, at least 10 years, to um, get a family medicine residency program going at ELWA. Um, but just to get all the pieces in place uh, wasn't possible until uh, late in 2016, we got the official go-ahead uh, from the government, uh, from the Ministry of Health and the Liberian College of Physicians and Surgeons to go ahead and begin this program, which we started in July of 2017. So, uh, but yeah, obviously I can go over there and, and be a, a good doctor and take care of patients, but if that's all I do, then when I leave, people will just say, oh, well, Dr. Saker was a nice doctor, but he's gone now. And, you know, I, I'd much rather uh, spend my time training and developing local physicians who can even go on to train additional ones in the future to develop a kind of a, a factory, a doctor factory, if you will. Um, then, you know, then when I leave, people will, will not be missing me. They'll just be saying, well, there's doctors here who can take care of us. And that's, that's what I want to see. I don't want to I don't want to uh, um, leave a gap. I want to leave a, a, a system that produces 
additional physicians. So it's, it's really uh, been wonderful to see that come to fruition. It's, it's an answer to uh, a longstanding prayer of mine. So. And what's the current state of, let's say, the health system in Liberia? Oh, I think it's quite challenging. The, you know, when you get one level, when you reach one level, then you start to see the next, you go over the crest and you see the next challenge, right? Um, I think a lot of things that we were, that during the war years, for instance, were, were terrible, uh, those things have been met. I mean, we now have uh, good uh, vaccination coverage. We have good treatment available for malaria. We actually have a lot more surgeons in the country now so that like basic things are getting taken care of, hernias and appendicitis and those things. We have better access. We have more surgeons in the country. There were, you know, 15 years ago, there were sometimes four or five surgeons for the whole country of Liberia. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Startling. that level of basic care is much better than it was. Mm -hmm. Much, much better. And but, so now the next challenge. But that now you're you have things like a kid comes in with Burkitt's lymphoma, right. which should, which is actually a, a, among cancers, it should be fairly easy to treat. But we don't have we don't have systems and treatment in place for those things. Um, you know, we we have basic AIDS treatment in place, but some of the complications we don't have good management in place for. So I, I think we're you know we've 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 achieved a certain level. And now we're looking at the next level. Uh, ELWA is, is looking at uh, opening an uh, intensive care unit. We recently got this, uh, this funding that you're aware of. Um, that's sort of a next level thing for us is, okay, we've got some basic care that's pretty good, but we don't have an ICU. Yeah. And we, don't have, we don't have nursing staff that's fully trained to provide critical care. So that's kind of a next level for us. So what you're talking about is that uh, you're being humble, but you were recently given uh, a very prestigious award, the Lahaim Prize for Outstanding Christian Medical Missionary Service, given out by the African Mission Healthcare Foundation, a prize that comes with a half a million dollars. So how did you find out that you were getting this award? Well, we did, we, I mean, we did apply for it. So this was okay. something that we uh, were encouraged uh, to apply for. So the the First priority is to continue to strengthen the family medicine residency program. Uh, and we're actually going to use some of the money for, a ha for housing uh, for faculty because one of the issues is we just don't have um, enough housing. So uh, we're going to build a duplex for, for faculty to stay in uh, that will allow us to bring on more faculty for the program. Then another major aspect of the, of the project is this intensive care development to train nurses and, uh, and doctors in providing critical care and then to build a small ICU, probably just you know six beds or so uh, of intensive care at our hospital. Um, and then the final thing is a small amount of money to kind of as a seed grant for solar power because uh, electricity is very, very expensive in Liberia. It's about a third of our operating budget is just paying wow. for electricity. Oh, wow. So it's, it's, uh, so that's a huge area where if we could develop uh, solar power, we could really cut down our operating costs. So what's next for you? Uh, well, uh, besides all those things you just detailed. Five days, <laughs> five days from now, I head back to Liberia. Uh, so we'll be there. Uh, I'm just thankful that uh, we get to be there, that uh, my wife is there with me. and. Uh, 
that uh, people are growing and developing and changing and that uh, there's progress. Congratulations on everything. And thank you for your time. It's been nice to catch up. Dr. Rick Sacra is an assistant professor of family medicine and community health at UMass Medical School who practiced at the Family Health Center of Worcester and also at the Eternal Love Winning Africa Hospital in Monrovia, Liberia. He's a graduate of UMass Medical School as well. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical. Mm-hmm.